Y'all, well, I'm going to begin this morning uh, talking about heaven. Uh, and interestingly, I guess as common as a idea that it is in what we think and what we believe as Christians, it's not a topic that I've just preached on in and of itself. Uh, sometimes it's something that we either take for granted or, or it's just something that uh, until something happens or it comes up in a certain passage, we, we don't really touch on it. And so uh, we're going to be going through a, a, just a five-part series uh, because it is something I think that is important to talk about. It's also something that I think for the most part is pretty popular to talk about. And uh, it was 2010, there was this book, maybe you remember, called Heaven is for Real. Anybody remember that book? Uh, it was about a little boy. Uh, he was three years old at the time. His name was Colton Burpo. And he, uh, I guess he was written, his dad wrote on behalf of him about an experience he had when he went in for an emergency appendectomy. And uh, Colton claims that he, 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 not only did he go to heaven, but he saw Jesus he sat on Jesus' lap. Uh, he saw some angels. He saw Mary. Um, one of his pretty outstanding claims was that uh, he met his grandfather that he had never met before and described him to his parents. Uh, and then one of the even more amazing claims was that he met uh, his, his sister, which was a child that his parents had, had miscarried. Uh, and they didn't, they'd never told Colton about this child. And so he came back talking about his sister. And so that was a story that his father wrote. And uh, I think within, it, it, was, it came out in 2010, within four years, it had hit the 10 million sales mark. And during that same year, they released a film that was, uh, had the same title, uh, Heaven is for Real. And uh, that film was pretty popular. And then today, I guess today, leading up to today, they've started this ministry to sort of help manage their public appearances because that's still kind of what they do. They talk about that experience and they go different places and they, they have tours and things like that. And so they've started Heaven is for Real Ministries. And to this day, he's a teenager and he stands by that story and he says even though he's gotten older, he doesn't remember it as clearly, but uh, it was something that really happened to him and his parents stand by him in that and... Uh, so, I mean, it's a, neat, it's a neat story to think about, but it's not really a new story. Uh, I remember in 2004, before that, that was the one that was really popular, but there was a guy named Don Piper who was a, actually a Texas Baptist pastor on his way to a Texas Baptist meeting, and he was in a car wreck. And uh, this was in 1989, but he wrote the story in 2004, and he wrote his experience of what happened and what he saw. That was called 90 Minutes in Heaven, and that was a pretty popular book, and it captivates us. What, what is it that captivates us about these stories as people that live in the world and, and haven't had those experiences? I think it's, it's probably, to quote another piece of Christian pop culture, it's listening people talk about what we can only imagine otherwise. Uh, because we, we haven't seen it. We don't know. We know the tidbits in Scripture, but we don't know what it's like. But I also think we have to be careful uh, when we, because we have this longing and, and we really want to know, we have to be careful of that longing, uh, that, that it's not focused on the wrong things. In the same year that Heaven is for Real was published, there was another book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, written totally independently from the other book. It wasn't copied, uh, but it was about a little boy 
uh, his name was Alex Malarkey, and he had a similar experience. He was in a car wreck, and he wrote about his experience in heaven, or his dad wrote about it on his behalf. He was about the same age as Colton. Uh, the book didn't, it wasn't quite as popular as, as the one that we all know about. Uh, the, the, the boy that came back from heaven didn't sell quite as many, but I think it still sold over a million copies in the first few years that it was published. So, it, you know, who would, we'd love to sell a, a million copies, anybody, right? That's not something to sneeze at. So, so it was still pretty popular. There was a made-for-TV movie that came out. But the thing that set this book apart from the others was that five years after it was written, Alex wrote a letter, and he published it online, and he said that the story was fabricated. And, and he cited wanting attention and pressure from his father behind writing that story and, and publishing it, and he, and he apologized. And so we see what happens when our longing to experience something or talk about something that God has given us overshadows God Himself. And I've had to be careful even with discussing heaven with my own children because they want to know all, all the details as I was talking about in the children's sermon. They'll ask me, Dad, well, well what will heaven be like? Are we going to eat in heaven? And I'll say, well, it talks about there being a big banquet, so probably so. You know, Will there be lots of rooms in heaven? And I said, well, it says in John that Jesus is going to prepare a, a place for us, so that could be rooms, or it could be houses, it could be mansions, you know, we, we don't, but probably, yeah, there's probably lots of different places in heaven. Well, will I get to bring my toys to heaven? Well, pro probably not. I don't think you're going to need your toys. Well, that doesn't sound like a good place if I can't bring my toys to heaven, Dad. And so finally I will concede and say something like, well, if God thinks that you really need your toys in heaven, if He really thinks that, then then you'll probably have them. But I don't think, oh, I will need them, Dad. I'll need my toys in heaven. And so even at that age, it is difficult for them to, uh, it's difficult for them to separate the things that they care about and what they want apart from what God has, has made heaven to be and, and what it's really supposed to be about. And so I think it's, it's something we really have to watch ourselves and guard ourselves. And so this series is not going to be about me sharing the geography of heaven with you or answering all the secret questions that the Bible doesn't answer about heaven because I don't know that. And, and the thing about heaven in, in the Bible is that the Bible talks a lot about heaven in a lot of different ways. And sometimes it talks about it as a very literal thing in a literal place, but sometimes it uses metaphors. And so, you know, often the books that, that you've maybe read or seen on the shelves are these books that, that kind of treat heaven as like a, a subject to be explored, a frequently asked questions book about heaven, right? And it will attach a scripture verse to every question that, that you might have. And and, and sometimes those scripture verses have some merit to them, and sometimes it's, well, I think you're missing the point. And so it's, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be a frequently asked questions. It's not going to be a glossary of everything about heaven. But I do hope to hit some of the, the high points that we can know for sure. And today, it's, it's going to be, I hope I don't let you down. We're not going to get into the details. We're not going to get into the, the weeds of it. But, but it is interesting. The thing I want to talk about today is that there is this general desire that we see. For, for heaven, even way back in the Old Testament. And, and today I'm going to hit some of the Old Testament wisdom literature with you that, that really maybe have been some of our earliest allusions to heaven. In the Old Testament, they didn't have this understanding of heaven that we have, but, but there always seems to have been this, this longing for it. 
This understanding that there has to, if, in order for God to be the God that he says that he is, there has to be something that, that is better than, than the way things are today. And, and that's what we're going to hit on. And so we have this longing for heaven. And first, I'm going to go with you to Ecclesiastes. If you want to turn to these, you can, but the passages are going to be on your screen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. And, and this comes after a pretty familiar passage. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. And these verses come immediately after the passage that is sometimes read at funerals that says there's a time for everything. You remember that passage, time to live, a time to die. And, and the teacher, that's who he calls himself in the book of Ecclesiastes, he is grappling with this idea that the way things are are not really the way that things should be, the way that things that God would like them to be. And, and so he's trying to struggle with that and, and deal with that. And, and he knows why. I mean, as a student of the Old Testament, he knows why. And we know why that things aren't the way they should be. It's because in the beginning, Adam and Eve messed up and they brought sin into the world. And, and that messed everything up. And, and things aren't the way they should be but because of that. But he also knows that that's not the end of the story. And, and he knows that, that God continued to work through his people and he, he tried to work with them and and there has to be something else. There has to be something more. And he understands that even in the midst of temporary life, God has promised good things to his people. And so in the middle of verse 10, we, we read this powerful statement that God has set eternity in the human heart. And that's a profound statement in the middle of an otherwise pretty bleak block of wisdom literature, of, of wisdom poetry, really, isn't it? The, the theme of Ecclesiastes, if you read the whole book, he keeps talking about how life just seems to be meaningless. You know, you live, you work, you eat, you play, you die. Amen? That's, that's the point of Ecclesiastes, if you read the book as a whole. He said that's, that's kind of the way things are. And, and for, for him and, and for Hebrews, that really was the end of life. They didn't talk about going to heaven. They talked about going to, to Sheol, is the word, or, or going to the grave. And that was the existence that they had. And, and even though they would go into the grave, they still understood that. It was nothing. It was kind of a sleep nothingness. But they understood that as, as part of their existence. And so we read about for instance, do you remember hearing how they took Joseph's bones when they brought his bones up out of Egypt and they brought them back to the land when they were brought into the land? It's because even in this state, even though he wasn't alive in his body, this, this existence that he had, if he was going to be buried somewhere, he, he wanted that to be with their own people because that was, as far as they knew, that was, the, that was part of his existence, even though it was very minimal. But the author can't shake his, this idea that there's got to be something more. God has set eternity in the midst of human hearts, but it's in the midst of this temporary life. That awareness comes to us when we, when we think about there's this long, there's, there's got to be something more. It comes to us when we look around the world and we see that 
and things really aren't as they should be. I, I remember very vividly as a child, one of my earliest memories is, is hearing a friend cuss for the first time. Do you, you remember the first time you heard a peer cu- curse? I mean, I didn't have a perfect family. I heard family members curse, you know, but that was just kind of normal. Uh, I'd seen it and heard it on TV. But I remember the first time up here, a, a boy that was a friend of mine cursed. That's just a vivid memory I have because that was just not something that we were supposed to do. Or I didn't think it was something we were supposed to do. And the first time I heard that, I thought, hey, that's, that's not right, you know. And those of you that are kind of perfectionist and type A personalities, you know, you kind of, I think, feel this a little more intensely. This is the way things are. This is the way things are supposed to be. And you want things to go by the rules, right? You, you feel that. And then others of you, like Ty, that are just kind of like, well, this, it is what it is. You know, you're laid back. And if, if it fudges a little bit, whatever, you know, you kind of live realistically. And the rules can go over here, and that's okay. You, you get by, and you do okay. But you still have this awareness, like this is the way it's supposed to be, and, and, and this is the way it is, regardless of how you handle it. And that's, that's what Ecclesiastes is, is, is talking about. And that's why we have these desires, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, to, to have families, you know, to enjoy life, to love others, to create things, to excel in our work. And, and those are good things. Those things are from God. But they're also not the central thing when it comes to talking about heaven and what God has, has made that to be and purposed that to be for us. You ever heard someone, uh, maybe someone passes away and you've heard at their funeral, maybe it was someone that liked to ride four-wheelers and, and you'll, they'll say something kind of tongue-in-cheek, oh, I bet he's up there you know, doing donuts in his four-wheeler right now. And we'll say that kind of as, as a joke and, you know, uh, but realistically, that's not what heaven is about. It's not about the things that we find joy in and the things that are just the best thing to us. It's not about our toys. If that's, as if, if that's the reason that God put eternity in our hearts so we could just ride a four-wheeler for forever. I mean, that's, that's pretty shallow, isn't it? It's about using our desires, using the things that God has given us, not for amusement or for just for fun, but to reflect God and to bring Him glory. That's what heaven is about. And so another reason we have this longing for heaven is is because of who we know God to be, because of His character. Look at Job with me, Job chapter 19. I think I'll just read this one from the screen. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end He will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job says these words after you remember the story of Job being accused by his friends of harboring some secret sin. You remember what happened? He lost everything that he had. Satan goes to God and says, you know, uh, uh, there's there's no one that really loves God. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, what's because he's everything is wonderful for him. He's doing well. And so, you know, God allows Satan to take things away from him. And in the midst of all that, he does not curse God. He's, he's righteous, is what the book of Job says. 
But his friends had this ancient view, and, and I think that one of the main reasons the book of Job was written was to denounce this, this view that individual sin was the cause of individual suffering in Job's world. And so after they go back and forth and they have this verbal sparring, he, he finally, Job says in what we just read, he expresses this hope that he has in God. And, and the difference in what Job hopes in God is, is, is this. In, in pagan theology, there were all these gods up in the sky and, and everybody had their own individual God. And, and if you could request something of your God, your God could go and it would, it would kind of make your case before the heavenly court. And if it made a good case, if you made a good case to your God and your God made a good case to the heavenly court, well, maybe things would work out in your favor. Maybe. But Job says, no, my God is different. This isn't happening just because of fate or, or, or because of bad things. I have this God, he says, that he says, in the end, he will stand on the earth. And in spite of all the horrible things, he calls this, he has this title for his God. He calls him his Redeemer. This one that, that can make right everything else that, that is bad, that can bring justice to all the wrong things in the world. And we know the end of the story. And he, he puts this hope in God and he says, I have so much hope in, in God that, that somehow even if I die, and this would have been unheard of in his day, even if I die, I'm, I'm going to see God. Even when my skin is destroyed, I'm going to see God somehow. And we know that didn't happen. We know that he... God blessed him and he gave him his things back and he was okay, but, but that was the hope that he had. And that's not something that Job says because he's learned about Easter, like you and I have. This idea of coming back from the grave was not something that was thought of or heard of or, or even it was you know, doctrinally correct. But because of what he knew about God and his character, he had this hope that there had to be, there had to be something, and, and he's right. Even before we learn the finer points of Christian doctrine about the resurrection, we know there's, there's something about God. God is, is right. That God, there's got to be something that God's going to take care of it because that's who God is. How, how many of you, if something doesn't go right, you have a bad day, you still call your mom or your dad? Talk to them and say, this is, I've got this problem. I don't know how to deal with it. And it's frustrating to me. How, how many of you, if you still have a, a mother or dad living and, and, and you're going to begin a new project, uh, maybe it's some kind of, you're working with your hands, you, you ask your dad, well, dad, how, how, do, how do you do this? Or you go to your mom and say, well, well I, I'm looking for this old recipe. You used to make this dish. And you do that because you know them. You know their character. You know they've, they've shown that to you throughout your life. And, and you have that within you and you know who they are. Luke is convinced that, that just because I can fix his wheels on his toy cars and uh, just because I can put his heads back on his action figure, that I can fix anything. You know, he's seen that small part of, of who I am, and that's just convinced him. Well, Dad, he, he can fix my toys. He can fix anything. I had confidence in, in my grandfather that was like that. He was literally built this junkyard from the ground up and he learned how to make money off other people's junk and so I just had this amazing confidence in him but I remember as I saw him age and, and particularly when I remember when when he was diagnosed with cancer and I saw him rapidly decline and and what I always had hope in what I always had just this untold confidence in started to fade that's difficult 
isn't it? It's difficult when what we've always known changes. In spite of what we know about God, there's, there's this temptation to focus on those uncertainties, on those things that are temporary, on those things that fade. Maybe you've experienced a really prolonged illness of a child. We've been so blessed. Our kids have been relatively health, healthy with one or few broken arms and hospital stays. But even with those minor things in the midst of that, like that is the only thing I remember being on my mind. I just wanted to relieve that. And, and I can't imagine those that have struggled with just prolonged, serious illnesses with children. That, that can't, there can't be anything else that's on your mind other than that. It's difficult as you watch your, your parents age and, and you think about, how am I going to take care of them? How am I going to take care of the stuff that I have to do and take care of them at the same time? That has the, 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 the ability to shake our, our confidence in God. But if we learn anything from Job's words, it's in the midst of all that he was uncertain of. He was certain about God. He was so certain about God that he says that, that my God will stand on the earth. I, God has this, this place. He's, he's going to do something and he's going to make things right because he's God. But here's the thing that we have. We, we know God right now in the here and now. And, and the last reason that we have to have this confidence and this hope as we think about heaven, this longing for heaven. It's because of the experience that we have of God right now, even in the midst of those uncertainties. And I want to read this experience from Psalm uh, chapter 73. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 21. And this is part of uh, what Ty read earlier. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Who am I, who have, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." And so here we have another unlikely hope in something that is based on what they experience in this life that goes beyond this life. And it talks about, uh, th this may be one of the earliest parts in Scripture that talks about us having hope in, in, in God's presence or God's glory. You know, we talk about God, this is present in some of the songs that we sing. We talk about God's glory as, as being the hope of heaven. I'll fly away, old glory. I'll fly away. There's an old gospel song uh, called Glory Land that says the lame will walk in glory land. The blind up there will see. The deaf in glory land will hear. The dumb will talk to me. Have you ever thought about what you're saying when you say, oh, glory? It's not you're saying, I'll fly away, yeehaw. That's not what old glory means. kind of sounds like that when we sing it. But, but glory, I'll fly away, glory, it's... it's, it's in verse 24, the psalmist is saying, You guide me with your counsel, and after you take me in to glory. The glory he's talking about is this glory that the Old Testament equates with God's presence. You remember when, when God's glory was revealed to Moses. In other words, the psalmist isn't talking about this concept of God that's way far away, or, or this God that nobody knows that's way up in glory. He's saying, no, it's this God that we know. 
It's, it's this God that revealed himself in a burning bush, that, that led his people out of Egypt, that brought them through the desert, that delivered them into the promised land. And now in this psalm, and, and what most scholars believe he's in the midst of the exile, being removed from that promised land after the temple's been destroyed, all hope of being in God's presence is gone. He says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. And the thing that makes him say that is the experience he's already had with God. That's where his hope for heaven comes from, even though he wouldn't call it heaven. This past February, five prisoners were working on the side of the road uh, near Tampa, Florida, and uh, a young mother had, had stopped on a side, one of these side shops, a uh, mother and a father, and they get out of the car, and unknowingly, as, as they're getting out of the car, uh, the keys were taken out of the ignition, and instead of putting them in his pocket, the dad set them on the seat. And, you know, most of these cars now have this mechanism where if the keys are in the ignition, the door won't, won't lock uh, if, you're, if you try to get out, if you try to lock it. But if it's placed on the seat, the car's not smart enough to know that yet. It's not long before that happens, probably. There's going to be some kind of sensor, but uh, the, the keys were in the seat. And so he pushes the lock button, and he locks the car, and he closes the door, and their two children were inside. And, and as these prisoners are working nearby, th those were the closest people to them. They were uh, trustee inmates out and picking up trash on the side of the road. They happened to be inmates who, who were in for breaking into automobiles. And so they came over to the car. This was, this was really this was in the news. And, and within five minutes, they had the door unlocked, and they had the children out, and they were so happy. And, and the wife was, was recording this on her phone, and you can hear her saying on her phone, Thank God for these prisoners. And she was just so happy. And, and interviewed the guy that was, was over them. And he was saying, you know, most of our trustees are, are people that, that want to redeem themselves. You know, they realize that they've done something wrong. And, and so it kind of just was natural for them to go and, and to provide this help. You know, that's, that's what we, those small glimpses are glimpses that, that this is a world that is broken, but, but there is, is good in it. And, and the Bible says that anything that is good, any good and perfect gift is from God. And so we have these glimpses of heaven. We have these experiences of God. And I think it's worth asking you know, ourselves, where is it? Who are we around? What, what are the moments when we are close to God? What are we doing? And, and how are we cultivating that? I remember as, as a young Christian... Uh, I loved being with my youth group because I became a Christian when I was, you know, in, in, when I was 15. I was later in life, and I was learning a lot about the Bible. I was learning a lot about church, and so I just wanted to be there, and I wanted to be with those Christian friends all the time. But, but as I've gotten older, I've come to a point where, you know, I, I, now I appreciate, uh, especially with kids, I appreciate a quiet room and no one else in a book sometimes. <laughs> A little more than being in crowds. I appreciate going on a, a quiet walk or, or just listening to a handful of my favorite preachers on a, on a podcast. And those are the moments for me now that I feel like where God is closest to me, when I experience God the most. The point is, our longing, should heaven, our longing for heaven should motivate us to cultivate the relationship that we have with God because we're going to spend eternity with Him. That's what heaven is going to be about. And so when we speak of heaven as being this place that is focused on fun and pleasure and, and excitement, we miss out on why God put that desire for heaven in our hearts in the first place. Our desire for heaven 
should feed our desire for God. You know, I can't know. Ultimately, I don't know the, the, whether or not the, the story of heaven is for real, if that's for real. <laughs> they, they claim that it's for real, and it's not a bad story to read. But I think I agree with what John MacArthur says about these stories. They're, they're, they're okay, but, but really they miss the important part of what heaven is about. And he says that, he says that, that, if, that if I were really to die and I were really to go to heaven and I, was really, I really experienced God and, and all His glory, he said, I would imagine the thing that I would want to talk about when I came back would, would not be the eternal bliss, would not be the, the, just the, 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 the happiness and, 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 and all the things that I got. He says, I imagine the thing that I would want to talk about was the person that fills heaven with all His awesomeness and majesty and glory. And so if your desire for heaven doesn't feed your desire for God, then your desire is on the wrong things. So as we begin talking about heaven this morning, that's what we want to set straight. That's what we want to put in the right place. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for the gift of eternity. And, and I pray that we would not treat it as something just to be consumed, as something that we just get because we walked an aisle or professed a faith or, or were baptized. God, let it be something that fuels our desire to know you in the here and now, to be faithful to you and to serve you. And God, would you lead us and guide us during this time? And, and God, we're just so, so grateful that we, we have that. God, if there's someone here that is not sure of, of heaven for them or, or how to receive that, would you help them to, to want to explore that? Give them, give them the, the grace to receive it through Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we do invite you to respond as God leads. And, uh, you know, as you think about heaven today, uh, it might just be to, to really connect to the God 